Good evening. Welcome back. And thank you for coming back. I know it's been a full day. And uh, you certainly had other options. So I appreciate you being here tonight. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, This time we'll dismiss the children to the children's training hour. Sorry, I meant to do that. Forgot. Unless you guys want to stay and watch some videos. Well, we are finishing up here Sunday nights for, not finishing Sunday nights, we are finishing up the series on Sunday nights for this part of Training the Twelve. Um, this lesson is the last of three where I'm addressing the subject of humility and how Jesus specifically was working to train the apostles to be humble in the right way and to allow that to permeate their leadership in the coming kingdom. Uh, Last week we said that uh, humility and leadership was part of the foundation that Jesus was trying to build on. He said that we, or we talked about we do this by one, leading others to the word, and we do that by listening, practicing, and preaching it uh, in that order. And we said that we have to learn to lead without bossing, which is, which is what Jesus called uh, his disciples to do, and certainly the apostles. Uh, thirdly, they had to learn to lead without an audience, regardless of where they were, a crowd of thousands or hundreds or just one. They had to do what God had called them to do specifically. And then finally, they <clears throat> had to lead without a title, not worry about the praise and the honor of men and women, but to do, in in fact, simply what was right. And this week, as we close out talking about humility, we're going to look at humility in in example, uh, humility in the example. I wanted to go to John the, the Baptist, and there's a unique couple of unique scriptures where Jesus is bringing the apostles, and he's instructing them about greatness and humility by pointing to John. And so I thought that would be a good study um, for us to kind of end on. In Matthew chapter 23, which we ended with last week, we said that Jesus contrasted the current religious leadership of the time, uh, that of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, with this kind of servant leadership that he wanted. So we're talking about humility of John. Uh, First of all, it's probably, without going into an entire biography of who John the Baptist was and all of that, but just briefly touching seven little things that I think were important to understand as we look at his life. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 36. By the way, this will not be on the slide, so you just have to pay attention and open your ears. Uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 36 tells us specifically that John was Jesus' cousin. Now we don't know exactly the relationship there, but in verse 36 of Luke 1, the angel said, uh, continuing in his conversation there, he says, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. 
And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. And so we know Jesus and John were pretty close, not just in terms of their family, but in terms of uh, age. So anybody who could claim to be a relative of the Messiah, and certainly as Jesus became more and more popular in his public ministry, you know, as folks become more and more popular, more people go, yeah, I knew that guy. I've been around him. Uh, Yeah, we spent some time together, sort of right on the coattails of other people's success. Uh, John the Baptist certainly could have done that. Number two, if you look at verse 15 of Luke chapter 1, I always found this verse interesting. He was under the Nazarite vow, um, which basically meant, and in John's case Specifically, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 15 says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, which is a pretty strong statement about who your child's going to be. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. So he was a cousin of Jesus, number one. Number two, he was filled with the Holy Spirit uh, from the very beginning of his life. Uh, You and I get the gift of the Holy Spirit when we're brought into Christ. Uh, Very few characters outside of the Christian covenant have that specific denotation of having the power of the Holy Spirit. There were a few. But John gets the, the unique distinction of being filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Number three, we're going to go to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Still in the same chapter, just a couple of verses forward. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John had a big task. Um, He was often compared to, and rightly so, the, the prophet Elijah. And you go look at Elijah's life and all of the things that he did and the powerful message which he b- brought to Israel, you know, there's just some big shoes to fill. Uh, that phrase has been used a number of times in my current state of life. You got some big shoes to fill. And that's certainly true. This is what John the Baptist had to do. He had to, you know, he had some big sandals to fill. I'm not sure if they had shoes at that time, but, but he had certainly quite a legacy. Um, I like what John Wesley says about this. He says, John had the same integrity, courage, austerity, fervor, and the same power attending the word that Elijah did. I think that's very, very accurate. So he's a cousin of Jesus. He filled the Holy Spirit from birth. He's compared to Elijah. Uh, Number four, he's a forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one, when, when he comes on the scene... You know, like when you go to a show and you got the opening act, and you know that when they're done, the people who you're really here to see are about to come on. This is with John. John was the opening act. And that's a big, big place of distinction. You're going to bring the Messiah, the Redeemer of all mankind, to the stage of the world. You got the opening act in John. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we're still there, verse 76. 
And you, my child, this is Zechariah, <clears throat> and by the way, he's filled with the Holy Spirit when he's pronouncing these words. Uh, and you, my child, verse 76, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. He was not just there to preach a couple of good sermons, a couple of good stem winders. He was in the desert on purpose. He was in the wilderness on purpose. And the, the crowds didn't know that. And I'm, I think John had, it, had a very clear idea of it, but he was a forerunner of the Messiah. His job was to get them ready, to prepare their minds and to prepare their hearts. Number five, <clears throat> and we kind of forget about this, but John the Baptist was a fairly successful preacher. I mean, to draw crowds out of the city into the wilderness to hear what he has to say, that's something. I know we've been in Luke chapter 1. We're going to turn out of Luke and go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. What we remember, tend to remember, is verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, which is always good Bible bowl quiz information. But... Verse 5 and 6, this is uh, really remarkable. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan. Uh, And this is almost right before he lays into the Pharisees and Sadducees a little bit. Um, success can be defined in a number of different ways, but as soon as you start getting crowds, the world starts to notice. You sell a best-selling book, you have a highly popular blog, uh, you make a successful business venture, uh, that's success. Now, what I'm about to say is pure speculation on Toby's part, but I think if on the, from the enemy's perspective, from the, from the side of spiritual warfare, if the enemy thought he had any chance with thwarting the mission for John, it would be this. Give give John a little success. Swell up his pride a little bit. Make him feel good about the the power of his words and the ability to move crowds. That's some some heady stuff. And if he could, uh, of course he wasn't successful, as we'll later see, but this would certainly be number five. Uh, he was a successful preacher. He certainly could have fallen to pride. Number six, he was certified by Jesus. <clears throat> We're currently, personally, looking for a, a different vehicle. Not a new vehicle, but a different vehicle. And so, it used to be just called used cars, but it's not that anymore. Certified pre-owned. Near as I can tell means we can verify it was used before you. Well, John the Baptist was certified pre-Messiah, and he was certified by the Messiah. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. This is, um, if you had one thing, only one thing you could put on your resume, uh, this would be it. (laughs) 
As John's disciples, Matthew records, were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? That's the Greek there, the term is politics. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, and you will prepare your way, and who will prepare your way before you. That's pretty powerful. I tell you the truth, he goes on to say, verse 11, that among those born of women, there has not, been, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Certified by the Messiah. So we'll see, review so far. One, he was cousin of Jesus. Two, filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Three, he was compared to Isaiah. Four, he was the forerunner of the Messiah. Five, he was fairly successful as a preacher and a prophet. Number six, he was certified by Jesus himself. Number seven, maybe the largest, easiest way to fall into pride. He was young. He was in his early 30s. Can you imagine such a thing? I have often thought of the story when Solomon became king in Israel. And there was this, uh, couldn't give you the exact reference, but there's this point in scripture where it says Solomon had basically had a choice whether he was going to, to observe and to follow the advice and counsel of his father's advisors, or he's going to listen to his own people, his, his contemporary, his peers, if you will, the smartest and brightest and best among his generation. And scripture alludes to the fact that part of his downfall was not paying attention to the wisdom of the ages. Young leaders can do that. I heard a quote one time that to not... Learn history is to remain forever a child. To not take advantage of the wisdom of the ages. And John the Baptist was certainly young, just a little bit older than Jesus himself. And he was changing the world. He was drawing crowds outside of the city to the wilderness to hear a lesson. And they didn't just come to hear it. When, he, when John preached, they repented. They went to the water. I don't think we give John nearly enough credit for what he did and for the place of position. This is where all this leads. That He laid down. It takes a solid man to have such success and then to do what he did. We're going to look at that in John chapter 3.
So turn there, and that's where we're going to. It's the text where we're going to hang out. We always have kind of some text where we just sit and drill down a little bit. And so we're going to be in John chapter three, verses twenty-two through thirty. Now you got to remember, Jesus has his disciples. John has his disciples. He was successful enough. He has people not just coming out to hear the sermon, not just coming out to be baptized, but they are there, and they're coming to John and saying, I'm here, and I'm not leaving, and whatever you do, I'll do. Wherever you go, I'll go. That's what a disciple was. So we'll start reading verse 22. After this, and by the way, this is uh, is a point where you're sort of off the... The printed handout, if you want to flip it over and take your own notes, that's fine. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. At this point, both John and Jesus are well into their public ministry. John has, if you look at the book of John, John has already testified about Jesus. He already witnessed about Jesus, who Jesus was to the priests and the Levites. Uh, he's already said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one, I'm, I'm a, if you think I'm the Messiah, you way misunderstand what I'm here to do. He's baptized Jesus. Uh, in fact, preceding that, that action, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John understood what his role was. Jesus has already called his disciples, as we've already said, He's already done his first miracle, changing water to wine. He's cleansed the temple. He's already counseled Nicodemus in in chapter 3. And here we are. Now, from the book of John, this is the last time we're going to hear about John the Baptist. Verse 23. Now, John was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water. And people were coming and being baptized. And again, we understand from other books that 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 was... Not just because they wanted to get in the water. I mean, John's message resonated with the hearts, and he was preparing the way excellently. Where is this Anon near Salem? It is uh, disputed. But we do know the word Anon means springs. It's Hebrew for springs. It's a transliterated word. And uh, so it tells us plenty of water there, which would be a good place for doing baptizing. Which is a little side note here. You got to have much water to do the baptizing. That tells us a bit that you know if, if if sprinkling and pouring was sufficient, you could do that about anywhere. But when they baptized, the word there means literally to be dipped or immersed, and so they had to go a place where they could be dipped or immersed. Puddle wouldn't wouldn't cut the mustard, as they say. Verse twenty-four. This was before John was put in prison, and so we know that this event happened between. Jesus' baptism and temptation and John's imprisonment. This is, again, as we said, both of them were well into their ministries. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Um, There was one commentator said this is probably an argument about Jewish purification and how they did that. Um, the washings and all of that, what baptism meant, how they went about it. And they would have received a lot of criticism for that. They weren't doing it in the, I mean, there was a whole methodology for that, uh, those purification washings. And 
there is, on a deeper level here, there's a growing competition. Right? You've got two very successful guys, and they're close, but they are, uh, their disciples are going, hey, wait a second here. You know, our, our guy's a guy. Our guy's a guy. And th- that's always dangerous, too. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, <clears throat> the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. You can just almost hear the, the fleshly nature taking over. And, and, you know, Jesus certainly understood, but to his credit, John did too. He understood that this, there was something deeper here than crowd size and ministry size. And, you know, it was something far deeper. And I think this is key to leadership and humility. You know, we get concerned about numbers and success and sizes and crowds. But that's flesh, guys. That's, that's what God is least concerned with. <clears throat> John was the symbol of the end of an era. And his baptism for repentance is going to soon be replaced by a different kind of baptism, of course, would be after Jesus' death. But this is the beginning of a new ministry. It's the beginning of a new kingdom. It's the beginning of a new covenant. I mean, he, I say the beginning. This is all, we've got to wait for the cross to happen. But we're very close. I mean, if human history has pointed to the cross, we are, we are on the hem of the garment in terms of <clears throat> being close. And John's disciples... Their concern is jealousy. Verse 27. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Boy, if that isn't humility in the truest, most sincerest sense, I mean, that's not false humility at all. I mean, that's, that speaks about John was great, and he had wonderful success, but he understood deeply where that success came from. And that's humility. He already long knew that it was not about him. And he said, hey, if my my time on the stage is over, my time on the stage is over, because it was never about me. That's good leadership. It also points us to this fact that authority in ministry does not come from men. It comes from God. The, the, the power, the, the life change ability. We get caught up. If, if we do something that makes people respond, it changes lives. We think, ah. But John wasn't about that. He said, hey, whatever I got was only from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah. And next to pride in himself, probably being called the Messiah was the thing that most could have tempted him. I mean, he had the power and he had the moving ability. And you understand that because he has disciples, those guys had put their lot in with John. Yeah, we think he's the guy. He says he's not, but we know. Okay. He, he himself says, I'm not it. If you're looking to follow the Messiah, follow that guy. And he points to Jesus. 
Verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. And I, in my mind, just imagine he said it exactly like that. We have this picture, of course, of John being this angry Pounding preacher and chastising the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But I think John was a joyful guy. He understood his place and his role. In that culture, the weddings were very different. It was a multi-day event. Cultural, involved uh, not, not just the families and guests and feasts, but it took more than just, you know, a wedding ceremony today it takes half an hour to an hour. This was a days-long kind of event. It was a big deal. <clears throat> but in that sense, Eflagard Smith wrote this in his book, Baptism of the Believer's Wedding. He said that John was the best man at this wedding of the kingdom. And that if that John was the bride, sorry, Jesus was the bridegroom, John was the best man. A good best man or maid of honor is concerned chiefly with the groom. And the bride. I don't know what your your wedding ceremony was like, but if you had a good best man or a good maid or matron of honor, what their job was was to make your stress minimal, to take care of every detail that you might be worried with. It doesn't happen as much in our culture's rendition of the wedding, but it did in theirs. The friend who attends the bridegroom. His job was to do the planning and the organization and take care of it. Buddy, you just enjoy being with your bride. See, and that's what John saw himself as. That's a beautiful picture. <clears throat> the joy was his. Now, you remember in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, there's this unique moment when John is in the womb of Elizabeth and Mary comes over. And when she hears Mary's voice, Scripture says that he leapt, that John leapt in the womb. I love that. It's like he recognized, even inside his mother, the voice of the coming Messiah, the presence of the coming Messiah. The joy was his. John did have some very serious sermons, no doubt. But I think when he saw Jesus, boy, he just got excited. Uh, he got humbled. He knew greater, much greater things were coming. And Jesus would say, of, of those more born among women, no one's greater than John. And here's two guys, very powerful, not letting their egos get caught up. Instead, focusing on the mission. Verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. If you missed all the commentary, John chapter 3, verse 30 is one you need to highlight circle, underline multiple times, uh, do whatever you need to do to remember it. Because John's attitude should be our attitude. We think we're something. We think we got stuff to do. Christianity, you know, we think we're big stuff. You ain't nothing compared to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, he must become greater, I must become less. When it's time for me to step off the stage, I step off. And let the glory go to the bridegroom. That's what makes me joyful. That's what completes me. So we understand that. 
John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, gives me a couple of, um, well, I think some important lessons that we can take today. And this, this is from all stemming from how John reacted to the temptation of power and of leadership. A temptation of ego, the temptation of pride. When he, he said he must become greater, I must become less, he taught us some lessons. One, humility comes from, we're back to the handout now, so if you want to flip over your sheet. Humility comes from understanding God's power. Uh, of course, we said he, he leapt with joy in the womb. He, he, understood, he understood Jesus in the womb. He himself understood by being filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> he witnessed it at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Uh, in fact, let's got a little time. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, <clears throat> 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, along with everybody else who's going out there. But John says, hold up, wait a second. He tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And John, John understood, when he understood who Jesus was, he felt woefully out of place. <clears throat> He'll later say, a man whose sandals I am not worthy to tie. Some translations say, a man whose sandals I am not worthy to hold. Which if you understand that culture, you know, holding shoes was a place of low, low place. And John said, I'm not even worthy to hold that guy's sandals. Not even worthy to mess with the straps. And you want me to baptize you? Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open. Now remember, we focus on Jesus here, and that's important. But John is there. He's in the water. Okay. <clears throat> and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus, I'm sorry, John was a first-hand witness of something we struggle to even explain, the concept of the Trinity. And he was with Jesus, he heard the voice of God, and he saw the Holy Spirit. Wow. Yeah, he who is humbled will be exalted. And, and John understood that. So, what's the lesson for us? <clears throat> Humility comes from understanding God's power. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses, I'm going to give you a verse on each one. It's not in the gospel accounts, but it's actually um, later on in the New Testament. Because I think that each of the uh, New Testament books will have scriptures that... Kind of echo the points. First Peter 5, 5 through 7. <clears throat> Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Think about one of the other most powerful men in, in Scripture, Pharaoh. How powerful he was. I mean, he... 
For all intents and purposes, he was the, not just the leader of the free world. He was the leader of the world when you look at where Egypt stood in that culture. But he was proud. He wouldn't move his heart. God opposed that in very real VBS story-like ways. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now, I've read that verse before in that whole illustration, but look at verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When I read that, it occurred to me, worry and anxiety, you know, we think of those little sins, ah, it's no big deal, you know, and everybody comes forward on a Sunday morning and and says, I'm really, I'm really caught up, mastered by the sin of worry. Nobody does that, but yet worry and anxiety, what's at the root of that? Pride. Because you think you have some semblance of control. If you struggle with worry and anxiety, it's kind of a worry-anxiety problem, but it's really a pride problem. Because you can't humble yourself to the yield and yield to the full control of God. Think about that. Uh, Jesus and John certainly had lots of things to worry about, but they didn't. They knew who was in charge. The power was not in religious rules or traditions of men or in crowds or accolades, but in God by his spirit through the word because of his son. Number two, humility comes in knowing that Jesus is greater and I am less. If you think about how we see Jesus How we see his cousin, John the Baptist. Specifically, John the Baptist, he preached the truth to seekers. He pounced on the scoffers. He took the religious leaders of the day and he said, you brood of vipers, produce fruit. Change your life. You know, talk about speaking truth to power. John didn't let up because of who was in the audience. In fact, he pointed them out. He said, stop claiming Abraham. That's worthless. You're riding on Abraham's coattails and it means nothing if your life is not in the right spot. He was a powerful preacher. He was humble in the the most sincerest form. But he understood there's one coming who's more powerful, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He is the one you have to answer to. Humility comes in knowing your place. Concerning Jesus. All right, for this one, turn to James chapter 4, verse 10. James chapter 4, verse 10. The brother of Jesus says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Just the, the whole thing, the whole attitude is such a great application for us. It is, it is an understanding that humility is when God then exalts people. If, think about this. If John was getting you know, faced with leaving the stage and leaving behind the crowds and the accolades and, and going to be put in prison and later beheaded, and yet here we are still talking about him today, that's the kind of exaltation that God gives to those who are humble. All right, number three, humility sees that God is eternal and that I am temporary. He must become greater, I must become less. Think about those words, those eight words, 
in a lot of areas of your life. Think about him in your marriage. He must become greater, I must become less. She must become greater, I must become less. Think about them in terms of your parenting. What is the will of Jesus for your children? I know you have big dreams for your children. I know you're going to make them successful. But what if God needs the best garbage man that the city of Detroit has ever seen? Is that your plan? What if that's God's plan? He must become greater. I must become less. What about your job? You have, you have great ambition. You're going to climb to six, maybe seven figures. Uh, going to have all sorts of power, all sorts of people under us, all sorts of reports. <clears throat> what if God calls you to leave all that uh, and, and plant a school in Uganda? or Plant a church in Rwanda. And the pay is minimal. And your name will never be known. And you'll be the sole proprietor. Proprietor, You'll have no other staff with you. He must become greater. I must become less. Could you do what God considers greater? What about your neighbors? How do they see you? Do they see Christ in you? I mean, you can go on and on with these applications of forgiveness and, and giving and our evangelism and, and the one another's of church life. And it all comes down to John's beautiful eight word lesson. He must become greater. I must become less. Our verse is 2 Corinthians 5.9. The apostle <clears throat> Paul, who wasn't with the original 12, but he got it right on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He says, so we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in this body or away from it. He must become greater I must become less is the eight-word eight lesson that I want to leave with you tonight. The legacy of John the Baptist that impacted you know, his apostles who saw all of this were going to have to live out those eight words in their lives. And they would later bring in a kingdom that would call even the Gentiles to live by that very principle. And that's what I leave you with tonight. He must become greater. I must become less. If we can only begin to understand that, we begin to understand not just the heart of John the Baptist, begin to understand the heart of Jesus. Which is why, as best a case as I can make, for yielding your life fully and completely to Jesus. To bowing your knee to his most holy kingdom putting him on in baptism and making your life a whole commitment, a whole absolute surrender, not to your will, but to his, because his will is greater. If you have any need, please come tonight. As together we stand and sing.